the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. My eyes are dry. My faith is old. My heart is hard. My prayers are to be give us a new heart and I pray today on this broadcast that you will make certain to uncover cold and hard hearts that you would quicken by the power of your spirit O Lord I plead the presence and power of your Holy Spirit now in the name of Jesus. Amen. Welcome to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenley from the National Prayer Chapel, and with me in studio is my wife, Alexandra. Welcome. Thank you all for joining us today. Do you need a new heart? Is your heart cold and hard? Are you willing to do whatever is necessary to have that new heart. In the scriptures, in the book of Acts, the seventh chapter, I'll begin reading at verse 49. As the prophet says, 
Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? God is looking for a resting place, and he does not rest in church buildings or synagogues. He does not rest in cathedrals. He does not rest in mosques. The Lord God of heaven only rests in a new heart, a place of rest for him, and a place of rest for you. So the question immediately comes, well, what is a new heart? And we're going to walk through very carefully material that is not going to inspire you as much as inform you. But I want to say at the very beginning, it's all about getting that new heart, a heart of love and tenderness and compassion, of being transformed and leaving the powers of darkness and walking in the light. So do you need a new heart? Are your prayers cold? Is your heart hard? Then you need a new heart. So let's look now at what is a new heart. Thank you. So the new heart is one of the ways that the Bible refers to conversion. It's also called regeneration, being saved, being born again. So we find in Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27, what the Bible says about the new heart. This is God speaking. He says, A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you shall keep my judgments and do them. So this is a promise that we have of the new covenant, where God promises that he'll give us a new heart and a new spirit, and as a result of God putting his spirit in us, we will walk in the statutes and the judgments of God. So in other words, we will actually do what is right because of this new heart and new spirit. This new heart, very practically, when it actually happens to you, you suddenly feel in, in your inner being this welling up of a hatred for sins that you once loved, and then you feel a new love for the things of God. So this isn't language we're used to using. It might sound strong to say that we're supposed to hate evil and to love good, but this is how the Bible describes it. So in Amos 5.15, it says, Hate evil and love the good. Romans 12.9, Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Psalm 97.10, Let those who love the Lord hate evil. For he guards the lives of his faithful ones and delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Psalm 34, 14. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Proverbs eight thirteen, All who fear the Lord will hate evil. So let's talk a little bit more about this. 
So in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said that a good tree can't bring forth evil fruit and a corrupt tree can't bring forth good fruit. He also said in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. So these are both ways of talking about the new heart. If you're filled with righteousness, if something is filled up, that means there's not actually space for anything else. So if you're filled with righteousness, there's no space for sin. And similarly, if you're hungering and thirsting for righteousness, that means you're not having an appetite for sin. So your appetite is changed. Jesus promised in the Gospel of John, he said, If the Son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. So that's what this freedom is. The Gospel freedom is not Romans 7, where you want to do what's right, but you still have something in your heart that's gravitating towards what's wrong, and so you have to suppress it and hammer it down. That's not the new heart. That's not the freedom of the Gospel. In this respect, Alexandra, it's very clear that each person must not evaluate the truth of what we're presenting today based on their experience. We have to go to the scriptures and establish what is the new heart, what is conversion, and not simply assume that I'm converted, that I'm saved. We have to carefully go to the scriptures and see what it looks like. So gospel freedom is literally a new heart. It's not the old heart made over. You can't make over an old heart. You can't patch it up. You have to have a new heart. So when you do have this new heart, you will, as I said earlier, you will find that you hate things that you used to love. So this happened very dramatically in my own experience. I used, this, this may sound strange, I used to shop at Victoria's Secret. And about a month after I was born again, I walked into Victoria's Secret and I saw the, the models on the wall. And just this hatred rose up in my heart that I had to turn around and leave the store. And since then, I've, I've not gone back to another Victoria's Secret store because the way that, I mean, women are just presented as these lustful objects instead of dignified people and women of God. And th so that was really unexpected. I was not expecting that to happen after I was born again. But that's one example of how I'm describing the Holy Spirit actually lives in you and he will inspire these feelings of repulsion or of attraction and you will be repulsed to things that are evil and you will be attracted to things that are good. And in line with this, it won't just extend in your own life, but you'll start to have a strong desire to see sin wiped off the earth. So Jesus in the Lord's Prayer directed us to pray that his kingdom would come on the earth as it is in heaven. Well, we know there's no sin in heaven. And so if that's really the desire of our heart, we're anguished that there's so much sin in the world. We see that it's destroying everything beautiful and everything good that God created. And so we want to see sin eradicated. So we'll definitely be removing sin from our own life. 
Um, you'll do what you can in your workplace to combat sin in your family and so forth. And you'll have an earnest desire and you actually will be trying to lead those you know into righteousness. And if you're in this state where the first desire of your heart is to see sin wiped out and to see righteousness and God's love brought in, then it would be absurd for you to sin in such a state. It would be a contradiction. You wouldn't do it. But I want to note here, it's very important that the righteousness that we're talking about, you can't separate it from love. So what happens, the Pharisees are a good example. So the Pharisees, they really had a zeal for righteousness, but they crucified the Son of God because they didn't have any love in their hearts. And the same thing happened with the Puritans, actually, in the Massachusetts Bay Colony. The, the Puritans were very zealous for righteousness. They had a death penalty if you broke any of the ten, the ten Commandments. And they would torture and even persecute other Christian groups like the Quakers because they disagreed with them theologically. So that's that's not gospel freedom either. That's not righteousness. So you can't separate love and righteousness from each other. The other side of that ditch is if you say, well, I just love everybody and you're, you believe in tolerance, but you don't take any stand against what is evil. Well, that's not really love because all those evil things are causing lots of damage and pain and trauma in those people's lives. And it's also a sin against God. Another th another aspect of this new heart, we won't go through every exhaustive aspect of it, but 1 John 5, 1 says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. So this is a real experience that you'll have when you're born again and when you have a new heart, is you'll suddenly find this Holy Spirit is welling up in you with feelings of love for other Christians. And it's not just, you won't just feel an emotion of love, but you'll actually feel that you would be willing to go to any lengths necessary to help them, even if it meant laying down your life. And you'll be overjoyed, like you'll actually really enjoy and be ecstatic when you can help them and when you can give to them. Um, one, one example I think of was I knew a family that was, ve was a very large family. They had, I think, six children. And I went over there and I cooked dinner for them one night because both the parents worked. And I said, you know, this will be something that will really help them. And it was a wonderful time. We had a great time of fellowship, of prayer. And I was just glad that I could help. So there's many ways that we help other Christians, you know, bringing them food. It, they might be in a time where they need help with their rent payments, babysitting, tutoring, driving them to church or the grocery store. But whatever it is that they need, you'll be really excited and happy that you can help them. And you'll find that your greatest desire will be to be with other Christians. So if you're someone who's like embittered against the church, or if you feel like all Christians are hypocrites and you don't want to have anything to do with them anymore, that's a clear sign that the love of God is not in your heart for other Christians. So if you are born again, nothing's going to be able to keep you away from the church. You know, it doesn't matter how much pain and suffering you go through in the church because of the evils that are unfortunately rampant in it. You will be praying and you will be asking God for that real Christian fellowship. 
and you'll want to pray with them. You'll want to read the Bible with them. You'll want to share your testimonies of what has Jesus done in my life in this today and yesterday in the past week. So likewise, if you are meeting with other professing Christians and in your group, there isn't an inclination to pray. There's no inclination to read the scriptures. You're talking, but you're not talking about the Lord or your walk with him. These are all signs that you're either not converted, that you don't have this new heart, or that you're backslidden. So in either case, your heart is not filled with the love of God and the things of God, and you're lacking the influence of the Holy Spirit. And this raises the question that if while you're on this earth, you don't love the things of God, why do you think that you would love heaven? Because heaven is nothing except the things of God. And why would you think that you're even suitable for heaven? So there's a second point I wanted to bring up. Did you want to say anything else on this subject? No, it's very clear that if you're in a prayer group, for example, and everyone is silent and there's a heaviness and people are not praying, there is unconfessed sin in their hearts. Unconfessed sin is the only thing that can prevent the joy of Jesus in your heart because when all the sin is confessed and you have broken free, the presence of God comes in such power and such love that it's explosive. Now, we did a revival meeting and we called for repentance and everyone sat like a bump on the log. No one came forward. But afterwards, several said, well, I didn't want to get undressed in public. Or, I really didn't want to talk about what I, what I do that's wrong. Okay, I understand. That's very American. That's the modern church experience. That is not conversion. And that is not going to allow and bring the presence of God into your heart. And into the church. And into the church. Confession of sin leads to repentance for sin. Confession is simply the admission, I've done this, okay? Now we pray for you, and you begin to repent. Lord, I'm going to turn from that. I'm not going to walk in that anymore. And the forgiveness of God comes into your heart, and the love of God begins to flow into your heart, and there is great excitement and joy. You want to know why there are so many dead saints in the church? Because they have so much unconfessed sin in their life. So another common stumbling block that I've seen getting in the way of people being saved is that they confuse healing or answered prayer with conversion. So uh, this sounds a little strange at first, but we'll see it in the scripture We'll start with the case of the lepers in Luke chapter 17. This is verses 11 through 19. Okay, let's be clear. What we're going to talk about now are people who have received from God incredible gifts, blessings. They have an emotional attachment toward Jesus. But that does not mean they've been converted. 
it is not a sign of conversion. That's not how it works. There's something much deeper that must happen. So let's look at these biblical examples. Yes, so this first passage is Luke 17, beginning in verse 11. So it says, And it came to pass, as Jesus went to Jerusalem, that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered into a certain village, there met him ten men that were lepers, which stood afar off. And they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said unto them, Go show yourselves unto the priests. And it came to pass that as they went, they were cleansed. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back and with a loud voice glorified God and fell down on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. And Jesus answering said, Were there not ten cleansed? But where are the nine? There are not found that returned to give glory to God, save this stranger. Then we have in Matthew, the 15th chapter, beginning at verse 22, a Canaanite woman from that vicinity, that is, a pagan woman, a heathen woman, from that vicinity, that is, in Tyre and Sidon, came to see him, crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is suffering terribly from demon possession. Well, Jesus did not answer her a word. So his disciples came to him and said, send her away. She keeps crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, It is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. Yes, Lord, she said, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Then Jesus answered, Woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. Well, did this woman, who received the gift of healing for her daughter was she converted no she didn't come and follow Jesus she went back to her home she went back to her heathen life now we pray that at some later date she accepted and confessed her sin and got right with Jesus and received a new heart but at this point she's not converted Yes, because she came to Jesus for the exclusive purpose of her daughter being healed. And then we have the story in John, the sixth chapter, where the feeding of the 5,000 happens. Now, these people have sat and eaten the bread, but Jesus knows they're there for the benefits. They're not there to surrender their lives to him. Now, let me try to say this in a very clear manner. It takes sometimes repeated confrontations with the Holy Spirit and repeated trials in our lives before we finally figure out that God is not just there to bless us, 
He is there asking us to lay our lives down for him. This work is done by the Holy Spirit as he brings a man or a woman to the utter end of themselves, rebukes the darkness, and that man or woman makes a final decision, a hard-headed straight-up decision, I'm going to follow Jesus. No matter what it costs and where I go, I will follow Jesus, and I will leave all sin behind. Now notice, in John, the sixth chapter, I'll begin reading in verse 53. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. May I just stop? Many of you this year have eaten the flesh of the redskins or of other sporting people. You have eaten deeply of the television. You have eaten deeply of those things that attract you in this world. You have not eaten deeply you have not eaten the flesh of the Son of God, nor have you drunk his blood. You've been religious. This is what we're speaking about today. You have to have a new heart. You have to receive that new heart. And it's, it's received in the process of making honest decisions that you choose to be converted changed, transformed. This is not gradual. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Now, he's speaking spiritually, not physically. He's speaking of a process that you walk in of being filled with Jesus Christ, where you have renounced the life of sin, you have left it behind. You do not nibble on Jesus and then gorge on the world. You would have no taste for Jesus. You eat from one table or the other. David in Psalm 23 knew where his place was at the table. It was at the table of the Lord. King Saul, on the other hand, went to the table <clears throat> of the witch and he put his feet under the table and he ate of that table and then he was killed. There is life at the table of God. There is death at the table of the witch. The world is the witch. He says, For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. <clears throat> Just as the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread 
that came down from heaven. Your forefathers ate manna and died, but he who feeds on the bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue at Capernaum. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, This is a hard, hard teaching. Who can accept it? And aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said, Does this offend you? Does it offend you that we're saying you must leave all sin and walk clean before God? Does that offend you? Jesus said, Does this offend you? What if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was <clears throat> before? The Spirit of life gives the Spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. The words I've spoken to you are spirit, and they are life. Many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. See, this is really the dividing line. Whether you choose to continue to walk in sin and claim to be a Christian, you are there then for the, for the bread, for the fish and the loaves. Or are you willing to lay your life down for Jesus? Yes, and perhaps the most obvious example that so if you think about it, thousands of people were healed, had demons cast out of them, were fed by Jesus Christ during his ministry. But after his resurrection, only 120 actually gathered in the upper room. So we can infer from this that if more of his disciples had been born again, where were they? Had they fallen away? So we can see that just because they're healed and fed and delivered from demons does not mean that they had this new heart and that they continued to walk in that. If you listen to our broadcast about the revival in Argentina, you'll recall that we read a story of a man who went to one of the healing services. And this man went and he was healed. And then he went home and was boasting to his neighbors that he had gotten healed, but he would never become a Christian. He, and he was making fun of the evangelicals, as he called them. So he just went for healing, and he did not want to be saved. But ironically, the Lord used his testimony to bring others to the healing service, and those people were saved and healed. So the reason that this is so important and why we're talking about it is because I speak to many people who have overcome a particular sin, and they know that it was Jesus, but they think that because of this, that means that they're now saved. So for example, I know several former alcoholics who've now been sober for over 10 years, and they attribute this to God. However, they're still continuing to sin in other ways. So one of these men is actually a member of my family, and he doesn't even make a profession of faith. He has one of the foulest mouths I've ever heard. But he says, you know, I was freed from alcoholism 30 years ago because of God. But this man, unfortunately, is not saved. The same thing happens um, if, God, if you are in a desperate place and you cry out to God and God answers your prayer. Um, it may be you're praying for your child to be accepted into medical school. You might be praying for your green card. You could even be praying for healing for somebody else. But just because God answers your prayer in, in one particular situation does not mean you have a new heart. 
And I bring this up because this is the only thing that I can think of that explains why our churches are filled with so many Christians who are still sinning, but think that they're saved. Yes, there is certainly a theological problem that contributes to this, but I think it's because people do have some kind of experience of God answering their prayer, and they think that that means they're saved. So don't confuse God answering you in a time of desperation. Don't confuse that with conversion. Jesus' plain command, he said to the woman caught in adultery, go and sin no more. And 1 John 3, 9 tells us that those who are born again or who have a new heart do not commit sin. When it comes to your soul's salvation, it doesn't matter, matter whether God healed you, saved you from poverty, saved you from drugs, saved you from alcoholism, gave you a place to live. If you don't have a new heart that hates sinning and loves righteousness and your actions in line with that, then you're not born again and your sins are not forgiven and you're not saved. What you're describing, Alexandra, is so radical. It's something we have not observed in our culture because most of us have grown up with lukewarm people who walk in the church and in the world. This is not what God is calling for in this last day. That's why we're praying for revival. Because when revival comes, men and women turn and they are given new hearts. They are filled with the Spirit of God. Their sicknesses are healed. They become one with Jesus. And they have a bold testimony that Jesus is everything. And love flows out of their heart. John Wesley said that perfection is nothing less and nothing more than perfect love. Sin is hatred toward God. Sin is hatred toward other people. Sin is hatred toward myself. God wants to plant that love in our hearts that we are excited and come alive and walk in newness of life, not in the deadness of unconfessed sins. So related to this point, I want to bring up that the good deeds of sinners are not redemptive. In other words, if you sin, you're a sinner, and the good things you do will not save you. This is a common mistake that leads people to think that they're saved when they've never been given a new heart and they're not saved. So let's look at this. Jesus said, this is in Luke 6, 33 and 34, if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be repaid in full. Matthew seven eleven, Jesus said, If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So in these passages, Jesus is acknowledging that sinners do what to the human eye appears to be good to their friends and to their children. But does this mean that these sinners are saved because they do these good things? No. No, we know that's not true. Jesus goes on to say, But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be the children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good 
and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So this passage identifies the children of God are those who love their enemies and pray for those who persecute them. You are not a child of God if you only do what the tax collectors do, love those who love you, and you're not a child of God if you only do what the pagans do, greeting your own people. Jesus says, if you love those who love you, what rewards will you get? Meaning you will not get any reward. You will not be saved. And then he says the requirement for salvation is to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. So we see that the Bible's plain teaching is that as a sinner who comes to Jesus, stops sinning and becomes holy. So you might say, well, why is this necessary for salvation? Why can't Jesus just cover my sin and then give me rewards for the good works that I do? So I think this is best answered with an illustration. So let's suppose that you're arrested and you're tried for assault and you go to court and you're standing before the judge. The prosecutor reads that you assaulted a certain person and he narrates what happened and you agree that everything he said is true. And then you go on to make your case and you say, yes, it's true that I assaulted that person, but I do many kind things for other people. And I've even done kind things for that person in the past. I hold open the door for people at the post office. I clean up after my workmates in the employee kitchen. I give money to the beggars on the side of the road. I help my kids with their homework. And I think that you should just forget about this assault charge. Well, what would you say of such a person? Well, first, you would certainly say that he's evil because you would say he has no sense of guilt and no sense of compassion for this person that he's assaulted. And secondly, you would say that the kind things that he did are irrelevant. So he's in court because he's being tried for a specific crime. So he either did commit the crime and he's guilty, or he did not commit the crime and he's innocent. So whatever else he has done in his life has no bearing on the current case. So this is the case with sinners. When you are judged by God, you will be judged for your sins. And I just want to be very clear here. Your sins are crimes and they are evil acts against God and against other people. So the question at hand is, what are your crimes? Did you actually commit them? And whatever other good you did has no bearing. It's irrelevant to the case. So then you might be saying, well, how can anyone stand on the day of judgment if everybody has sinned? Well, so first, your past sins must be forgiven. And this happens because you die to sin and die in Christ. And the beginning of Romans chapter 7 actually talks about this. Let me read it for you. It's Romans 7 verses 1 and 2 and then 4 through 6. He writes, Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law, how that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he liveth. So the law only has power over us while we're alive. So she, he goes on, For the woman which hath a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as she lives, but if the husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, 
that ye should be married to another, even to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. For when we were in the flesh, the motions of sins, which were by the law, did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. But now we are delivered from the law, that being dead wherein we were held, that we should serve in newness of spirit, and not in the oldness of the letter. So very practically, what this is saying is, you don't haul a dead person into court to be tried for their crimes. Once you are dead, you're freed from the law. So when you die with Christ, you are freed from all of the sin and the penalty because of the atonement of Christ for that whole old life of sin that you lived. The Bible talks about it as the old man. The old man is dead. You put it off. It's gone. You're free. You're born again. <laughs> You're a new person in Jesus. And now you no longer sin. So that's what it means to be dead in Christ. Be you died and the sins you committed before your conversion are not counted against you. They're forgiven by the blood of Jesus. And Go ahead. So that raises the question. Does that mean that a Christian is incapable of sinning? How would you answer? So this is a question that people ask a lot. And to me, it sounds like saying, well, is it possible for me to shoot myself in the head? Is it possible for me to jump off a bridge? Well, yeah, it's possible, but why would you do it? So what I'm saying here is God, of course, does not take away our free will. But the free will of a born-again person, the free will of a person with a new heart, will be set on living a sinless life. Adam and Eve were tempted in the garden, and they were without sin but they were tempted. Every Christian will always be tempted by the devil. But no temptation will come to us that we cannot, through Jesus Christ, turn aside from and overcome. This issue of sin, there is simply no excuse for it. Sin is destructive, it is hateful, it is dirty, it is filthy. It is not something that brings life and energy and power to us. It's righteousness, Jesus' righteousness. And he does this work not by imputing it. Now, let me be clear. Jesus does not give us figuratively his righteousness. He instead comes in and imparts to us real righteousness. He transforms us and makes us into new creatures. We're not the same old people anymore. Yes, yeah, so the Bible in 1 Corinthians 6.18 says to flee fornication. So that you see the attitude of the born-again person is you would, you would literally run away from the possibility of sexual sin. You're not going to like sit there and think about, you know, should I do this? Can I get away with it? Maybe God won't really mind. No, you're running away. You are fleeing. And this is true of all sin. Let me read this for us. 2 Corinthians, the fifth chapter. I'll begin in verse 14. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all. 
that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though once we regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. That's what you're saying. Yes. All of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us this message of reconciliation. Then the next verse, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And this is what we're pleading for. Yes, so a a Christian who has a new heart will be so grateful to Jesus and will also have a fear of God that will keep them from sinning. You know, Jesus said that if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off because it's better for you to go to heaven maimed than to be cast with your whole body into hell. Well, that's not just, like, scary, but that's actually how someone really feels when they're born again, is they'd say, I would rather cut off my right hand than sin against God. Now, if that's not your attitude towards sin, that's not a new heart. So, the second thing, not only do your past sins need to be forgiven, but you must be made holy. There's a promise in Thessalonians that says the God, that the God of peace will sanctify or make holy your soul, your mind, and your body. So your entire being will be made holy by God. And as a result, you do things that are truly righteous and truly innocent. So you're transformed from the corrupt tree bearing bad fruit, and now you become the good tree bearing good fruit so that when God judges you by what you've done because we're all going to be judged by what we've done he will find that you actually did righteous things and that's by faith that you did those things and he'll find that you didn't sin so the sin again that you committed before your conversion was forgiven by the atonement of Jesus so I want to just say here another common question people come up with was you know well what about first John okay so The idea here is that when you're converted, you should not sin again. So the idea of past, present, and future sins forgiven at the cross doesn't actually make sense because there should be no future sins. But there is a lot of false teaching. And 1 John was written to Christians who had been infiltrated with Gnostic teaching. So... There is a promise in 1 John chapter 2 that if a Christian does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. But if you read the verse before that, John says, I write these things unto you that you sin not. So the command is still that we do not sin. But we can infer that the Christians who John wrote to, having been exposed to this Gnostic teaching, may have sinned after their conversion. So in this case, John is encouraging them to return to Jesus, meaning confess their sins, be forgiven, and then walk clean, no longer sinning from that point forward. So I just wanted to say, if, you have, if you're thinking that sin is really not that bad, 
why don't you read through the Ten Commandments and let's just take an honest look that sin is actually evil. So there's lying, there's cheating, there's theft, adultery, murder. Would you actually say that any of these things are okay? Would you like it if somebody lied to you or stole from you or killed you? No. So this is what I mean when I'm saying that sin destroys everything beautiful and good that God has created. Who in their right mind could possibly plead for the right to sin? That's like saying, give me the right to steal. Give me the right to cheat on my wife. Give me the right to murder. Will you so twist the gospel that you could imagine that God gives this right to you? No. God forbid. So it's very clear. We have to deal with sin. That is the topic of all of the scriptures. And Jesus wants to give you a new heart. He wants to give you a new heart wherein he can dwell, where he can rest with you. What work do you need to do now to prepare your heart to be clean before God that he could come and rest in you. This is what revival is. God coming and resting in your heart. This is what it means to follow Jesus. Now we have so watered these precious things down that they've become meaningless in our culture so that a man can say, oh, I'm a Christian, and then go enjoy the world. Oh, I'm a Christian. I can do whatever I choose to do. And as that person sits in front of the television, as that person goes to the movies, as that person plays his video game, as that person smokes his stogie, or as that person drinks his alcohol, as that person fights and yells and screams at the children and the husband or wife, they are sinning against God and they are grieving the Holy Spirit. If you do these things, you are grieving the Holy Spirit from you who wants to come and rest in your heart. He wants you to be a part of the temple where he abides. He wants you to be a part of the church. Now, obviously, the church must be cleaned, scrubbed, washed by the word. It is to be spotless and without wrinkle as the bride of Christ. These things have to be seriously looked at and studied and understood. It requires us to come to a place where we're willing and eager to lay our life down for Jesus Christ. And that is what conversion is. When I die to my past life, I am freed from the law. I am no longer under condemnation. I am healed. If I go to Romans, uh, let me turn there very quickly. Romans, the eighth chapter. I just want to read this. It's so incredible. Therefore, 
there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You cannot be in sin and in Jesus. You can be in the church and in sin. But you can't be in Jesus and in sin. Because this is chapter 8, verse 2, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man. If you are still a sinful man or woman, the scriptures say you are condemned and you must repent. You must get a new heart. It says, and so he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the spirit. Well, we're out of time today. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress. Would you share this message with someone else? Would you go to our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com? We're at the end of the month. We're far from having the cost of this broadcast covered, and we are strictly a faith broadcast. It is... God moving in the hearts of our precious listeners who keep us on the air. If this broadcast is important to you, we'd like to hear from you. You can write to us at the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. And again, please visit our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com, where we'd love to hear how this broadcast has changed your life. You can also listen to this message and past messages there. God bless you. We love you. We look forward to hearing from you soon. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.